you'd like to turn in your Bibles, if you're, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1178. And it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. May God bless his word to us this morning. How are we doing? Thanks for leading this, Ricky. It's great. It's great. I suppose there's, there's be some of you here this morning that, that know me really well. Some of you here this morning who maybe know me a little bit. Some of you who have no idea who I am. So I suppose about to say a little bit just uh, about who I am. Uh, in that I was, I was raised as a part of this church community here at Mutley Baptist Church. I've probably been a part of the community here for about 25 years in total. From about the age of one sort of on and off through until about, it must have been about 20, 27 or so. Uh, I spent six or seven years uh, as a secondary maths teacher, both around Plymouth, and then I moved up to London in 2010. Uh, up there, became a part of Ballon Baptist Church in southwest London. Uh, I met my lovely wife, Sarah, who was over here in the UK as a primary teacher uh, from Australia, sort of hijacked her while she was here for one year and sort of haven't let her go, which is great. Uh, Last year, in July 2013, I I left this glorious world of secondary education and felt a call into into ministry. Uh, And so I'm studying at Spurgeon's College in southwest London. I've finished one year there, just going into my second year, working three days a week as a student, and then three days a week I work as a part of Ballon Baptist Church there in the community. So that's me. And I'm thrilled that I get a chance to open this letter to Philippians to you. Because the the city of Philippi is the first European city that Paul introduced the gospel to. And he had this deep affection for the people there. And in some sort of poetic parallel, this is the community that first introduced me to the gospel. And I've got a deep affection for all the people here. But I've got to tell you, I was pretty daunted when I was sent through the, the teaching plan for this month. It didn't make really happy reading. Because the thing that leapt out was that two weeks ago, you had the dulcet tones of the Reverend Dr. David Coffey, OBE, 
speaking to you. Former General Secretary of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Former President of the Baptist World Alliance. Last week, Reverend Dr. Derek Tibble was here. Former Principal of the London School of Theology. Former President of the Baptist Union. Vice President of the Evangelical Alliance. Past Senior Minister of this fair institution. Next week, you've got Ian Coffey. Vice President of Moreland's Theological College, former director with the Salt Mine Trust and the Evangelical Alliance, another former senior minister here. This week, you got me. <laughs> so I dropped in the midst of these theological titans. I was saying to a friend the other day, I kind of felt a bit like the, the interval or the intermission in a big performance. They disagreed with that. They said it's more like a sandwich. And I was like, oh, great, I'm going to get some great encouragement here about how I'm the weighty filling. And they say, well, it's like you've got the, the, meat, the weighty, crusty bread on the outside. And then this delicious, juicy filling. And you're kind of like the lettuce. <laughs> Someone's got to like lettuce, haven't they? Anyway, last week you, ex- you finished this series looking at Revelation and what the Spirit of God was saying to these seven churches. And today we're starting listening to what Paul said to the church in Philippi. Talking about the joy that is found. And today we're exploring what joy there is in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as your people. Lord, to hear your voice. Lord, we praise you that you don't leave us stumbling in the darkness, Father. You don't just leave us by ourselves. You draw near to us. You look to guide us, to shape us, to lead us, Father. Lord, would you open our hearts to you this morning. Speak into our lives. And change us and lead us in your ways, Lord Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned, this whole series in Philippians is looking at joy. It's going to be looking at one of those things which is really difficult to tie down when you talk about joy. I don't know if you're like me, but I find it pretty difficult to make myself be joyful. You know, I could, I could go to the mirror every day and say, be joyful. But it's, it's not always going to work, you know. Like I could go to Sarah in the mornings, I could... I could sing her a joyful song, maybe with some carefully choreographed interpretive dance with a bit of point and grab, you know, all that stuff. But it's not guaranteed to bring her joy in the morning. It'd be easier maybe to just bring her a cup of coffee. To be honest, that probably would bring her joy most mornings. Joy's hard to inspire. And Paul, right in this letter, he seems to be in a position where he should have had less joy than most. Because this letter, he wrote it from a really joyless position on the face of things. He was imprisoned at the time. He faced a lonely future. Maybe he was going to have a trial soon. Maybe he was going to be sentenced to death. And even while he's in prison, there's people outside going to preach into churches and communities that he loved, that he preached to. And they're talking against him and saying that how everything he did was rubbish. And yet he writes to this church calling them to rejoice, to be glad. And these themes of joy and thanksgiving, they're just splattered throughout this letter again and again and again. So how does he do this? Well, it's because his joy is not found in his circumstances. Paul's joy has grown because of the good news that he found in the gospel. Verse 3, we've already heard, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. It's the experience he's had of seeing God's hand at work that has brought his joy into bloom. And it's the same with us. In seeing God at work in our lives and removing some of the barriers that we have to joy, we can find joy flourish as well. 
We're going to look at how God demonstrated the gospel's power in Philippi. Its ability to liberate, to refresh and transform lives. And when Paul saw that happen in in Philippi, that stirred his joy. And we'll see how God longs to stir our joy in the same way. So firstly, finding joy in the gospel. It is there because the gospel is liberating. Paul knew about liberation in a very real way. You know, from his first visit to this vast and wealthy city of Philippi, you can read all about it in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they end up in prison because there was this slave girl that followed them round as she was shouting at them day after day after day, so they cast out this spirit from her. And this slave girl's owners, they weren't happy about that. That lost their ability to make money, so they made trouble for Paul and Silas and got them trapped in prison. In this prison, Paul and Silas, they're praising God. And there's an earthquake and it shakes the very walls of the building. It opens the cell doors. It destroys the chains. I mean, prison seems a fine place for a bit of liberating, right? But it doesn't end up the way you might think. The jailer's expectation is that all the prisoners have done a runner, right? So he's got his sword ready. He's going to kill himself. Because if they've gone, then it's his, his life that's going to be forfeit. But Paul and Silas, they're still there. In fact, all the prisoners, they're still there. The jailer's expectations of what was happening would have brought him death. But the reality was life-bringing. The jailer falls to his knees and said, what must I do to be saved? Paul's simple response, believe in Jesus Christ. The jailer immediately takes them into his own house. He has his whole household and family baptised. And what does it say he's filled with? Joy. He's filled with joy. Because there is a different end to the story than the jailer's expectations. We here in Western society, we, we don't get held captive the way our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq and Iran and North Korea, places like that. We don't feel that persecution and imprisonment to the same degree. And I don't want to be flippant, but we often put ourselves in prisons of our own making. So I believe that here in Plymouth and across the Western world, we're, we're continually building walls in our minds which imprison us. And we're locked up by the same thing that nearly brought death to the jailer. And that's our expectations. Our expectations, they hold us and constrain us day after day and they prevent our joy blooming. Let me explain that a little bit. As I mentioned, I was a, a mathematician by trade. Uh, And I went through my early studies at at university and I had expectations that, you know, at the end I'd just get a job in finance in the city. You know, I thought that would be a good thing because doing a maths degree, it makes you fairly desirable, doesn't it? I mean, professionally, although some might say in other ways too. I think that's true. I thought going into the city, you can make loads of money. And in in my better moments, you think, I can make so much money, I could give it away, I can be so charitable, that'd be excellent. Think how good that would be. But that expectation of mine, it made my view of the future really narrow. Just like looking through a tunnel. It restricted my imagination of what could happen in my life to only a few outcomes and nothing else. And although I didn't realise it, this imprisoned my mind completely. One day I was sat at home on my bed and I asked a dangerous question to God. I said, God, what do you want me to do? I wisely followed this up because both my parents were teachers. I followed up and said, I'll do anything you want, but I'll never be a teacher. 
So what happens? You don't need a clairvoyant spirit to tell you. You know, like as the days and the weeks progressed, I felt this feeling in me that I should go into teaching. And the worst part of it all was I wanted to do it. I wanted to go into this profession. But the thing is, unlike my, my narrow, self-constructed view of the future, with my expectations, this new view that God gave me was wide and broad and deep and high. It's full of technicolor. It stirred my imagination. I could teach anywhere. I could teach anyone. My expectations, even if I got them all through in the way I wanted, they'd have brought me to a gray and a dry place. But God's reality brought life and it brought liberation. If we shrink that down, that situation, it happens in our lives each and every day. We get up and we have our expectations of what each day is going to hold. Perhaps it's the hope of getting all the kids up and ready, wearing the right shoes on the right feet. Well done to all the mums and the dads that have accomplished that this morning. Maybe we've got a big to-do list of jobs that we want to do. We've got to want to get them ticked off. And if we do, then we'll congratulate ourselves. Perhaps we're just going off to work. But before we go, we've already got this framework in our minds of what's my commute going to look like? How am I going to have these conversations with my colleagues and maybe customers? What are those meetings going to look like? How do I want them to come out? What's my, what are my presentations going to be like? Perhaps our expectations are we're going to be in our neighborhood. We might nip down to the shops, do a few little bits and bobs, go here and there, drop in on a friend or two for a cup of coffee. Perhaps our expectation is just that we'll be sat at home, alone all day. The problem with all of these is that we've almost set our expectations in stone every morning. So how's God ever going to reach into that when we've already constructed what we're going to do? In my plans for the future, there was no room for God to come in. And we cut him off unwillingly every day. God longs to bring us life and he longs to bring us liberations, but our expectations, they imprison us. Henry Ford, he developed the first mass-produced motor car. He once said, if I'd asked the customers what they wanted, they'd have told me a faster horse. Because the fact is, our expectations, or even what we want, is not necessarily what's best for us. Daily, we need to find that liberation from our expectations by listening to God's voice, allowing him to change our hearts. Allowing him to direct the paths that we live and remove these blinkers from our minds, which means we see this world just narrowly. It doesn't mean we don't go to work still, unfortunately. But it means we go with our, with our horizons wide. We say, God, where do you want me to be today? What do you want me to be doing? How do you want me to be in this place? It allows us to say, God, where are you at work in this world around me? And how do you want me to join in? In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Because our expectations, they project this thin, this wobbly, splintered pathway before us. But God has got one which is wide and it is bright and it is green. It's full of life. Joy is found in daily liberation from our expectations and joining in partnership with God's purposes. Joy is also found in the gospel because the gospel is refreshing. Part of Paul's joy in writing to the Philippian church comes from the refreshing that they have given him. 
Because his reason for writing this letter is, is twofold, for, to give thanks mainly. Firstly, it's to give thanks for a gift of money that they sent him. We know that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. We're not 100% sure whether it was in Ephesus or in Caesarea or in Rome. But he was in prison. And it was likely that he wasn't fed because often at that time, if you're in prison, you're not given food. You have to get provision from other people. People have to give to you, else you just go hungry. So the Philippian church gave him money to allow him to buy food, to be refreshed, to be nourished. Number two, they also sent him a man. They sent a man called Epaphroditus. You're going to meet him in more detail probably in the next few weeks. And he probably brought this financial gift, but he himself was a gift to Paul. He brought encouragement. He brought support. I mean, there's something refreshing about human contact that food doesn't just bring us. Isn't that right? I wonder if you've ever felt the deep need for refreshment. As I said, Sarah's a primary school teacher. And this year, she's got the joys of year one. You know, these little five and six-year-olds. To me, that is utterly terrifying. But she loves it. You know, these little tackers, they're they're faced with formal education for the first time. They've been in nursery. You know, they've come up through that. They've gone to reception classes. They've had, had all that play all day, all the exploring. Now they're in year one, and they've got to learn. So first day back, just before midday, Sarah's got one of these little angels toddle up to her, little tears in her eyes. Sarah says, what's, what's the matter? The child looks up and says, I'm just so hungry. I'm so tired. Sarah's like, well, it's nearly lunchtime. Do you think you can last a few more minutes? The child sort of nods stiffly and wanders off. Because whether we're small or whether we're large, we need refreshment so much whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual. We need refreshment. And if we don't get it, we just sort of shrivel up so quickly. Even just a morning at school will do us in. Great Israelite King David, he was well experienced in need and refreshment. He wrote these words in Psalm 63. He said, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there's no water. Words most likely written in the Judean desert. Well, he's been pursued by his own son, Absalom. He's hunting him, trying to kill him. You can feel the wrong outness of David's spirit in this. It's like he's crying out, God, I want you, I need you. But I've got nothing left. How do I get refreshment? Might be a number of people here this morning that, that feel like that. You might have walked with God for a number of years. And you know you need for God, but right now you might feel helpless in your pursuit of him. Maybe it feels like you've been running flat out for so long, you, you just don't know how to stop. And there's no rest in sight. How do you find refreshment in a 24-7, full-on, flat-out kind of world? The Bible helps us learn from the lives of others. So what does David do? Well, we look at the next words he says. He says, I have seen you, I have seen you, God, in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. I will be refreshed. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. David reminds himself of all that he's seen God do. 
He reminds himself of the times that he's felt closest to God and he gives thanks for the things that he knows from the past to help him deal with the unpredictability of the future. His thanksgiving leads to his refreshment. Paul's approach is the same. Certainly the money in Philippi and Epaphroditus' presence would have brought him sort of replenishment, but it's out of Paul's deep gratitude and thanks that his refreshment comes. And in turn, this brings joy to him. When he should have been a completely and utterly broken man. Paul's thanksgiving, it just pours out of this passage at the start of Philippians. The start of his letter in verse 3, he just says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership, because you've stood alongside me, because you've supported me. In the gospel from that day, that first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, to the day of Christ Jesus. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you feel that thanks and gratitude to this group of people? This church that brought him refreshment and his thankfulness brings him joy in his heart. So how do we find refreshment that brings joy to us? Well, we can do something that's a bit counterintuitive. And to be honest, it's pretty hard when we're feeling dry and strung out and at a loss. It's giving thanks. Perhaps we find a point in the day, whether it's the first thing in the morning, whether it's in the car, whether it's in the shower, whether it's on the loo, to simply give thanks. It might be just for simple things, for another day, for a warm bed, for fresh air. To just say thank you. To let God inspire our gratitude. Let him lead our gaze to other things that we are thankful for. Maybe for good friends. Maybe just the smile of a stranger in the street. Maybe it's the smell of a good Chinese takeaway or a chip shop or a good strong hot cup of coffee. And as we give thanks and reconnect with God through that, we'll find him refreshing us. Filling us again bit by bit with his living water which in turn will bring us that joy. And thirdly, joy is also found in the gospel because it is transforming. Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi doesn't just reveal the liberation and refreshment you can find in the gospel, but also in the way the gospel transforms. And if you say that transformation doesn't bring joy, then you've you've never seen a small boy or a small girl playing with a transformer, you know. There are other inferior transforming toys available, but transformers are the king. You know, they're like these wonders of the modern age. You've got this robot that can turn into a plane or a car or an ice cream van or a truck or an ambulance or a dinosaur. Amazing. I had a few, which which I loved. But I always wanted Optimus Prime. That's so true. Everybody wants Optimus Prime. And not the new one. This is like the Generation 1 one. This This is old school. That's the one. This awesome robot leader who transformed into an articulated lorry. I had a friend who had Optimus Prime, and I loved going around to his house, getting to play with him, transforming from a a truck into a robot. There's something joyful about knowing that it looked one way, but you can transform it into something completely different. 
only get misty-eyed talking about it and end up buying one on the internet later, which I really shouldn't. And worse, I'll end up sounding like my dad talking about Thunderbirds. But anyway, the gospel has got the power to transform and bring joy way above even Optimus Prime to a small child. When Paul first went to Philippi, it was a non-Jewish city. There's no synagogue to go to like he might have done. So he goes along to a women's prayer group. Again, you can read about it in Acts 16. There's a lady there called Lydia who deals in expensive purple cloth. So Paul shares the gospel with her. She listens to Paul and her and her whole household are baptized. Paul was then in Philippi for, for maybe a matter of days, a few weeks at the most. And he leaves behind a church which is made up of Lydia's household and the household of the jailer that we heard about earlier and maybe a few others. How long do you think that's going to last? Just a couple of families coming together. With only a few days to learn about the gospel. I'd have given them a month, tops, and then they'd be off the face of the earth. And yet the community they go on to form goes on to be a model for other churches to follow in terms of their giving, in terms of their, their biblical fellowship, in how they deal with unjust sufferings and persecutions. God took just a couple of households. And the power of the gospel transforms them. So much so that 2,000 years, we're still learning about joy through them. You've heard of Antonio Stradivari, the Italian violin maker. He lived in the 17th and 18th century. His Stradivarius violins are are world-renowned. And most prized violins ever made, their unique sounds can't be duplicated. And yet these precious instruments, they weren't made from choice trees and bits of wood. They were carved from the woods that had been thrown away. Stradivarius started with a poor man. He couldn't afford to go and get the good wood. And the wood he had came from the dirty harbours around where he lived. He'd take these waterlogged, dirty pieces of wood back to his workshop. He'd clean them up, he'd dry them out. And from these trash pieces of lumber, he'd make instruments of immense beauty. Apparently, while the wood floated in those dirty harbours, I need to check with John Spicer afterwards about this, but apparently microbes went into the very cells of the woods. And it ate away the inside so that even within the fibres of the wood, there's these little cavities, which create these resonating chambers inside the wood itself. Stradivari, he took wood nobody wanted, and he transformed it into these instruments that everybody is after. It's what the gospel does. It takes our our rejected, our discarded, our waterlogged lives. And it can make us into something beautiful. Even using the things that have eaten away at our insides to create lives that resonate most beautifully with God's love and his joy. And those who burn brightest with joy, they're, they're rarely those who have come through life completely unscathed. The joy shines brightest in those who, who have been discarded and waterlogged, who feel like pieces of scrap. God, the master violin maker, he uses wood that nobody wants to produce lives that everybody wants. And as we find the liberating, the refreshing and the transforming power of the gospel, our joy it rises and it overflows in our lives. It's why Paul can write with such joy from such depths of a prison. Liberty, refreshment, and transformation, they're all found in their ultimate states at the cross. 
Jesus came to took, take away everything which imprison us, which entangles us, our expectations that seek to lead us off on pathways here, there, and everywhere. And through his death, all the chains and the bars and the shackles can be removed and we can, try, we can find true freedom, truly liberated to find God's joy-filled pathway. And that freedom, it's something that we can give thanks for every single day. And in giving thanks, we find that refreshment. And then in the tomb three days later, that greatest of transformations take place of death transforming into life. To declare that not only does Jesus have power to bring this liberation and to bring refreshment, but he can transform anything He can take the discarded, the rejected, the dead existences that we find ourselves in and breathe life into them. So how do we gain this liberation, this refreshment and transformation? The response is the same as Paul's to the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can say to God, I believe that you came in Jesus. I believe that you came to the cross and in the cross you liberated me. Thank you for your liberation. I'm sorry for the way that my expectations have shaped my life. Please would you guide me in your ways. And it will bring him the greatest joy to come into our lives, to lead us, to shape us, to transform us, and lead us in this refreshing life in all its fullness that he has for us. You can listen to me harp on all day about this, this joy that's found in the gospel and try and explain it. You wouldn't want to, but you could. But that would have zero impact on your life compared to listening to what God is trying to say to you individually this morning. So in light of that, we're going to finish by spending some time in prayer. Spend some time asking God to speak into our lives, to open our ears to what he is trying to say to us right here, right now. Because he wants to bring liberation, refreshment and transforming. And stir up that joy within us. Let's close our eyes in prayer. I wonder how God has been calling out to you this morning. Perhaps you do feel the restrictions of your expectations. All the expectations of others. How is God looking to broaden your horizon? How is he seeking to liberate you? Maybe there's an area of your life that he's just prompting you about now. Maybe it's your work, a relationship, a habit or an attitude. Saying, I want to bring liberation and life to you. Would you just let me in? Maybe you're here today and you've noticed you really need refreshment. There's a part of yourself that just feels completely dried up or just plain old stagnant. I do get the feeling there's a few people like that here today. You might be feeling like you've just been pouring yourself out for ages, giving of your time and your energies on and on, and you just feel utterly spent. It could be a recent change in lifestyle, arrival of a child. Maybe it's a friendship or your marriage which just has gone off the boil. Or a job which it's a real struggle to be enthusiastic about. Something within the kaleidoscopic world of color around you just seems grey. It feels like nothing really changes. It may even be your relationship with God. 
Perhaps you feel your faith has become a dry routine. Rattling through a chapter of Bible reading. And then that never-ending guilt of not praying enough. In that patch of greyness, where are the things to give thanks for? Even the smallest of things. Let God lead your gaze. And bring the points of colour into focus and let God's refreshment in. Or perhaps the burden on your heart is for transformation. There's something that feels so dead, so lost, so broken, there's no way back in your own mind. A situation or circumstance you wish would bring life, but it just saps energy. It brings death and despondency instead. Maybe the street or the building you live in that feels that lifelessness. Perhaps it's your physical health or your lifestyle. You hope it could be so much more. It could be a colleague at work you really struggle to see eye to eye with. There may be those here who feel their whole life is utterly wretched and is broken beyond repair. And transformation just seems completely stupid. It seems impossible. But like that master craftsman, God can transform anything. We the wood must be willing to be shaped though. We need to be open to be moulded. You actively seeking that transformation. Are you allowing him in to work? What one or two things is God bringing into your mind, into your heart? Hold them before him. How does he want to bring liberation or refreshment or transformation? We need to be those who listen to him and let him lead us. Lord God, we are, we are so humbled that you would look down upon us with joy that you would look down upon us as your dearly loved children, that you love to scoop us up in your arms, to liberate us from the things that would bring us death, to bring refreshment when we're just tired out, to bring transformation to the things which just feel broken and useless. Father, we're just so grateful and thankful for your love, for your grace, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross that in that moment you took away everything that might hinder us from coming to you. Everything that stops us knowing your way and your life that you have for us that can be a life filled with joy and live to the full, Lord God. We know it is hard, but we want to trust in you, Jesus. Father, would you lead us in our lives? Shape us, mold us, stretch us. Show us your ways and your paths. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our hearts, our lives, this day and onwards, Jesus. In your name, Lord. Amen.